We're so glad that you're here today. Thanks for coming on this gorgeous spring day. Love it. I have a question for you. So as a kid, did you guys ever pinky promise anything? Pinky promises. I was thinking back, and I was remembering when back in my life, that was like the ultimate. Yes, that person, like there's no way they could break that promise if you pinky promised. And I remember my my siblings and I would do that all the time. And then I remember the first day that a pinky promise was broken. And it was just like, wow. And I remember my sister wanting to pinky promise after that. I'm like, no way, no. I, I don't, I no longer believe in pinky promises. After the pinky promise, um, we went through another phase and it was uh, the swear to it. And the kind of swearing that we did was uh, cross my heart, hope to die a thousand needles in my eye. And, uh, and I remember went through that phase and, uh, and, and thinking, gosh, why would you even say that? thousand needles in your eye like if you think about that that's awful <laughs> and so um just it's interesting as we grow up we we start to ask the questions well how do we know if something's really true how do we know if people are are, are really who they say they are really going to do what they say they're going to do last week was easter it was awesome we had a great great time and mike and i spoke on um Jesus claims. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and he claimed to be the Messiah, and how the resurrection was proof that his claims were true, that the resurrection was proof that he actually was who he said he was. And so today I want to talk about just evidence for the resurrection, um, because if the resurrection is so important, and it is, then how do we know that the resurrection really did happen. And so I'm going to talk about two different types of evidence today. I want to first start off with historical evidence, historical evidence for the resurrection. And uh, historians look at evidence all the time. There's, there's tons that's been done uh, with archaeology and biblical lands. Um, they're, and they're trying to study and learn what was the cultural context, what was the history in which this story happened, what are our sources what artifacts do we have? What are, what are documents that we have? And uh, they study all this kind of like you would in a, in a courtroom to try to, fit, to put all the little pieces together to make sure that what's being said is actually what, what happened. So I, I, I want to talk a little bit about historical evidence, and I want to bring up two historians. So we have a Roman historian named Tacitus, and in, around 110 um, A.D., he wrote um, the history of Rome, and he was writing about an emperor named Nero, and a lot of you may have heard of him, um, but he allegedly started a fire in Rome that, that destroyed most of Rome, and the people started rebelling against him because he, he had started this fire. And so in the history, we, we find out how he, um, he, he blamed the Christians for having started the fire. And it, the history there talks about just the, the great number of people that had come to call themselves Christians and then the horrible persecution that broke out after Nero kind of used them as a scapegoat and, and said that they were the ones who started the fire. So there are his, historical pieces just like that um, 
who that historian, what, his intention was not to write about Christians, not to prove that what, you know, the Bible says happened. He was just writing the history of Rome and, and the Emperor Nero. But we see that his, his writings about the Christians um, totally collaborate with, uh, you know, they, they speak um, to things that happened that were mentioned in the Bible. And we can see how um, those things um, go hand in hand. Another historian I want to mention today is Josephus. And Josephus, um, his, he was lived between 37 A.D. and 97 A.D. So he was alive. Um, so he was born, I guess, in 37. Jesus died on the cross in 33. So he was alive in the time period where there were a lot of witnesses to, to Jesus. So it's kind of in that same time period. And he writes um, the history as well, and he mentions two events. He mentions uh, John the Baptist beheading by Herod, which is a story that's in Scripture. And he mentions um, this guy named James who was stoned to death. And normally they refer, they, they give the name of the person and then who, who their father is. That's how they would refer to them. So James, the son of so-and-so. But in his historical account, he says, James the brother of Jesus called the Messiah. And so in his historical account, you see his, and it's just a little snippet. Yeah, this guy was killed and it was James, you know, the brother of Jesus, whom they called the Messiah. And so you see how we have um, some historical pieces, even outside of scripture, that speak to the story that we find in the Bible. Interesting to me that scholars don't really question whether Jesus existed. Um, they just question, is he really the son of God? And did he really rise from the dead? Because there's so much evidence that points to the fact that Jesus um, existed. So then, so then we have to ask the questions, well, well we hear the story in scripture, um, but can, are, are the scriptures true? Are the scriptures accurate? Um, and I can speak to that. It's interesting, um, we have 5,600 manuscripts or more, so a little over 5,600 manuscripts of just the New Testament alone in Koine Greek, which that was the original Greek that it was written in. This is an unusually high number of manuscripts for something so, so old. Um, second highest would be Homer's Iliad, and we have 643 copies of that. And so you can see, I mean, historically, this is historical evidence, the documents found, um, and we have so many of them. And, and there's been a lot of question, well, the ones that we have, they're not the originals, they're the copies of the originals, so how do we know they're actually, they're actually accurate? And uh, one of the things that, well, the, scholars look at two things. One of the things they look at is what's the age of the copies that we have? Okay, so um, if, if scripture was written in the first century, what's the, what's the age of the, the, the oldest copies that we have? And I have up here, I chose this one. Uh, there's lots of pictures of them. But this manuscript is called um, P52, really creative name, uh, P52. And the reason I chose this one, because this is actually the oldest section of a scroll that we have. And this is from John 18. And it's the story of Jesus before Pilate. And um, it's a tiny little piece. This, the oldest dated one is just a tiny little piece. It's like three by five inches. And um, you have verses in there that match um, the story in John 15. 
Again, Homer's Iliad, um, the earliest copy we have is 500 years after the original. And this one um, is dated around 100 AD. So this one is less than 100 years after Jesus. So these are just really interesting things for me. Um, on, on that, before we move on, um, in college, I did a lot of Greek. Uh, I got my BA in, in biblical texts, and um, I, I heard about this really cool job working for this professor where you were actually looking at pictures of old manuscripts, and you were comparing them to find any variants. So if, if words had been changed or anything. And I just thought that was such a cool and glamorous job. And <laughs> I know. And then I went there in the office. And it was, it was a great job. I mean, I got paid for it. But I would just spend hours looking at two different texts. And letter by letter, we would go and we would look. And there was a group of us letter by letter. I mean, even one single letter that was changed. And we rarely found them. But, you know, you'll notice, oh, this is plural, this is singular, and we note that. Um, and so there's been a lot of research done, um, so much research. This is just like a super quick um, overview, just to show that the scriptures that we have are reliable. And it's incredible how little variance there are between the oldest copies that we have. So what they do is, is they take all the copies that we have and lay them out in order, so you have your oldest to your, uh, so the, the newer ones, and then they compare, so the, the oldest ones to the Bible we have now, or the newer ones, and how much was changed. And in, um, like, Homer's Iliad, um, it was like 5% variances. In Scripture, they found less than 1% variance. And, and a lot of those variances are spelling errors, you know, and things like that. And I think it's cool in the Bible, when you read your Bible, sometimes there'll be a little note. Um, It'll even say, well, in earlier manuscripts, it could be this word. And so it's not even hidden where where those variances are. Um, One, they're not major. And two, it's right there. You can actually see that. And to me, that really speaks to the reliability of Scripture. Another thing I want to look at as as we talk about the historical evidence is looking in the Bible and what's the historical evidence that we find actually in the narrative of the resurrection. So there's um, this theory in scripture that um, the Pharisees started that the body was stolen, that Jesus wasn't actually resurrected, that he was stolen. In fact, the, the Pharisees were a little concerned about it when Jesus was killed because they went to the Romans and say, hey, we know this guy predicted he would raise from the dead. Can you, can you place some guards in front of the tomb? And so that's what they did. And, uh, and, and the scripture tells us that there was an earthquake, the angels came, um, Jesus rose from the dead, and those soldiers just fell over like dead men. Is what that looked like? I have no idea. But the soldiers somehow just fell over, and Jesus was resurrected. But then they came too, so they weren't, they weren't killed in that. Um, and they went to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees said, um, look, here's, here's some money, here's what we want you to say. Instead of telling what actually happened, we want you to, to say that the disciples um, stole the body. And why this points to historical evidence is because um, 
Roman soldiers are very regimented. They're very disciplined. And to have lost something that you were guarding, the penalty was death. Like they should have been killed unless you had someone very powerful behind you protecting you from that. So the fact that that's what the soldiers said and weren't killed points to, well, there was something else, something else going on. If Another thing that's interesting, if the, the, the Romans and the Pharisees really had believed that the body had been stolen, you would, have, you would think there would be some sort of investigation. I mean, that, that would have been a crime. There, they would have looked into that, and, and we see no evidence of that. The other, um, the other thing I want to mention about that is, is the disciples themselves, when all this happened, they were scattered. I mean, they were dis- disillusioned. They were grieving. They were, um, they were, they were heartbroken. They didn't really believe or think that he would raise from the dead. They, we even read a story about them walking off to Emmaus going, they were leaving some of them. And so it doesn't make sense to say, well, that, yeah, those disciples were responsible for stealing the body. Like they, they were, they were not, um, planning something. You can tell just in their behaviors. The disciples were also not portrayed in a very good light. Um, it's not something, a story they would, if they're going to make up a story about the resurrected Jesus, you would think they'd make themselves look good a little bit. And um, they don't look real good in the story. <laughs> they don't believe uh, the women when they said they'd seen Jesus. And then when Jesus does appear to them, they thought he was a ghost. Um, and I think that carries the same connotation back then than it does now. If you think you're seeing a ghost, you're, yeah, you're, there's something going on. <laughs> um, and so... And so it doesn't make sense that they would have made up this story. Another thing that's interesting, some historical evidence just in the text, is that Jesus appeared to women first. And uh, you have to know the history, the context of that time. Women back then, um, they were not considered a reliable witness. They were not considered, they couldn't legally like go to court and testify that, and, and, and that testimony be taken as credible. And so if you're going to write a story uh, about something miraculous happening, you're not going to write about Jesus appearing to a woman in the first century because they were not a reliable witness in that culture. Another thing in the text that we see is Peter saw uh, linen wrappings. So this was the, the, the wrappings that they wrapped um, Jesus' dead body in. And if there are guards outside and you're going in to steal the body and, and this is a broken body this is a body that's been flogged and crucified you're not going to take the time to unwrap the linens and then carry that body out unwrapped like that just doesn't make sense and, and the linen wrappings were there it's interesting um, one of the gospels even says the head wrapping because they had a separate wrapping for the head was rolled up and nice and neat and laid right there. Uh, another piece of evidence from the text, uh, both from Scripture and from outside of, of Scripture, because some of these we don't know from Scripture itself, but from other historians, is that 11 out of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith. 11 out of 12 were killed because they were preaching a risen Savior. So it doesn't make sense to me that 
this story was made up by them if, if they're willing to preach their entire life and then um, die for that. The last thing I want to look at here um, is the fact that the disciples preached in Jerusalem. So it'd be one thing if this all had happened out in the country with 12 men, a few women, and Jesus, and then they're coming back to the city saying, hey, this is what happened, guys. You've got to believe me. Pinky promise, you know? <laughs> this is what happened. Um, and that's not, these events happened in Jerusalem, in the city, thousands of people watching. And, um, and they preached there, and there were eyewitnesses to different parts of the story. So where they were preaching, there's all these witnesses to, to Jesus' ministry. There are witnesses to the crucifixion. Um, and, and afterwards in Acts, we hear of, of these huge crowds coming to believe in Jesus. So in Acts 2, it talks about 2,000 people believing in a day. In Acts 4, it talks about 3,000 people. So five, at least 5,000 people in Jerusalem who had seen parts of the story who could testify and verify to it or believing in Jesus. In, um, there's, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes um, to, to the Christians in Corinth, he says, what I've received, I'm passing on to you. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And he appeared to um, Cephas, which is Peter. Notice he's, he's using a more credible quote-unquote, source there, you know, a credible witness to them would be, would be a man. And so he says he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And he says this, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at that time, most of whom are still living. So he's saying, hey, he appeared to not just me, to over 5,000 people, and they're still there. So if you want to go verify that account, if you want to go ask them, they're there and you could go do that. So there's so much historical and textual evidence confirming um, the resurrection. And I just kind of scratched the surface. Um, I, I'm not, I, I don't have a very analytical mind. I think I know some people, like, they would just really dive into this, the little pieces of history. I think Micah, if he were preaching, he'd be, he'd give a lot more detail on all these things because that's the, that's the way his mind works. I find it interesting and I find it really cool that history points to the credibility of this story. But for me, that's probably um, not as powerful as another kind of evidence um, that I want to talk about today. And this is the, the idea of experiential evidence. The idea of our experiences with a risen Savior. So what are, what are people's experiences with Jesus having been raised from the dead. So I want to tell you a story today. I want to tell the story of a, of a woman named Mary Magdalene. And uh, she's mentioned by name multiple times in Scripture, more actually than a lot of the other disciples were mentioned by names. Um, so I want to, uh, we don't know a ton about Mary Magdalene, but in Luke 8, um, it says this. Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And there were 12 with them, and some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. 
these women were helping support them out of their own means. And, and going back to the historical context in which the story is written, in, it's fascinating to me that the authors talk about these women, including Mary Magdalene. These women that were healed by Jesus, some of them demon possession, some of them were diseases, speaks of Joanna. We know she's upper class, a wealthy woman because her husband worked for Herod. Susanna, we don't know much about her. And then it talks about Mary Magdalene. And it, it just, just one little phrase from whom seven demons had come out. I have no idea what that looked like. But I, I, I don't think it was pretty to have uh, seven demons. I imagine that there were times when she did not have control of her, her mind or her body. And, and I wish I could have been there to see what that healing looked like. I wonder if it was dramatic. I wonder, I wonder what Jesus said, if he said anything. And I can imagine just like a peace coming into her eyes as she's being healed by Jesus. And then she's given an opportunity, uh, her and these other women, uh, like no other at that time, because um, women not only were incredible witnesses, but it was culturally just unacceptable for women to, to study and to learn, um, to be educated, certainly not in the religious setting. So you had men that, that studied under a rabbi that were the rabbi's disciples, and it was unheard of for a woman to be able to follow a rabbi and to learn um, from him. So Jesus not only heals Mary, but then he, he gives her this opportunity to really follow him and to study and to learn. I can imagine that that was a life-changing event for Mary. Um, later on, it, it, Mary it also mentions her at the crucifixion. In fact, all four Gospels mention women at the crucifixion. And, and three of those four mention specifically Mary Magdalene by name. Um, we know that the, the disciples, the 12 disciples, fled at Jesus' arrest. Um, though John seems to indicate in chapter 19 that, that John was there. One of the disciples was there. Um, and it's possible that the women were less likely to get arrested standing there, and maybe the men who followed Jesus would have been arrested um, because women weren't really considered to be the followers of this rabbi. But in Mark 15, it tells us the women were watching at a distance, and, from, and among them was Mary Magdalene, and it lists some other women. And these women had followed him and cared for his needs, and many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Can you imagine what that must have been like for her to have been healed by this man, to have followed and learned, to know that he saved your life, and then to stand there while he was being killed and unable to help, unable to save him. I can imagine that the grief and the pain was, was overwhelming. And it, it further on, in Matthew 27, it mentions that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb as, as, as they were burying Jesus. 
So even when others fled, she, she stood by Jesus with the other women to the very end, or to what she thought was the very, the very end. So last week, the exciting part of the story, last week we read um, Matthew 28, the account of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary going to the tomb. This week, I just want to read through uh, John 20, verse 11. And it, it talks about how um, Mary Magdalene, here, let me get out of here, how Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? And they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. At this she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and, and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do you not hold on to me? For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Two things I find remarkable in this story. One is that even Mary thought the body had been stolen. Like, what other conclusion can you, can you draw? Um, someone must have come and stolen the body because the resurrection in her mind was just so far outside the realm of possibility. It's like someone must have come, and so she's asking this man who appears to be the gardener, where have you taken and I love how she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus until he calls her by name. He says, Mary. And then he, she knew that it was him. I love that. Um, find that significant because God, God knows us by name. And then the second thing I find remarkable is that Jesus appeared to, to Mary Magdalene first. She was a woman. She wasn't a reliable witness in that culture. Um, people likely weren't going to believe her. So, I mean, maybe you'd think, well, Jesus would appear to the head guy or would appear to um, the Roman um, governor that, you know, authorized his death or something, like something big and showy and flashy appear in the sky and everyone see him. Something like that. And instead, Jesus chooses to appear to Mary Magdalene. Why would he do that? Why would he appear to Mary first? And I think from the beginning, if we look at Jesus' ministry, we see um, that he was all about lifting up the humble. He was all about healing the sick. He was all about loving the poor and giving voice to the marginalized. He was about that, that real, authentic relationship. And Jesus chose Mary be, 
because he'd seen her at rock bottom and he had healed her and given her hope and and she was a genuine follower and she was committed to him and those are the things that are important to God those are the things that are important to Jesus he he wanted to give her that hope from the beginning you know that that he'd given her at the beginning say hey i am alive and it's just a beautiful story for me of just what it means to experience jesus so i mean we can look we can look at the historical evidence that's great but when i look at the stories of people who've experienced jesus that's when i'm i'm really touched i'm touched by that i found this definition for experiential evidence it says the collective experience and expertise of those who have practiced or lived in a certain setting. I love the word collective. So it's not just one person, one instance, their experience, so then this must be true. But it's the collective experience of so many people who've ex- who 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 met and experienced the risen savior. So we have Mary Magdalene story in scripture. We have many others. We have the 500 that were still alive when when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Um, We have the history of the Christians throughout from that time on until now, how they experienced Jesus in their life. And today, we're invited to experience the risen Savior. We're invited to be a part of that experiential evidence that Jesus indeed is who he said he is, that indeed he rose from the dead. I love James 4, 8. Um, It says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. It's really simple, and I I like the simplicity of that. If we come near to God, he will come near to you. When we seek God, when we seek an experience with the risen Savior, seek to know him, he he draws near to us. He, He wants to be found by us. When I look look at our group here um, I see big things that big decisions that we've made because Jesus is a risen Savior and because we know that to be true I mean I think of Mike and I and just this whole church planning journey and how crazy that's been um, it's because the foundation of that is that we really do believe that Jesus is risen and he really is speaking to us it's not something that we want to believe or that's kind of made up. Like, it's real. Um, Gabe and Sally spoke a few weeks ago, and, and their whole story, going to Mississippi for five years because they felt like God was calling them. People don't do that unless it's real. I think of um, Randy and Stephanie that, that were here earlier today and, and fostering kiddos and how they feel called to show Jesus love in that way. I think of Jake and Jen with their Christian counseling practice, wanting to counsel and speak into people's life from that lens. And I always think of the Bush family and and adopting little Maley, you know, and that, that journey. God calls us to do big things. And yet we also experience Jesus as a risen as a risen savior just day in and day out. And I get to stand here 
in front of you today and say, hey, I have experienced this risen Savior. I've seen Jesus. I haven't seen him like Mary Magdalene. I wish I could have been there and seen him like in a physical body. But I've seen him. I felt his presence in my life. I felt the strength surrounding me that could only be from God. I felt that that gentle outpouring of peace after crying out in prayer. I felt his comfort when I've experienced heartache and heartbreak. I've felt the courage to speak up and to speak to people or to speak out, you know, in something like this. Um, Think of our marriage. And in our marriage, I've learned to love, learning to love because of what Jesus is doing in my life and how he is loving me. I've seen so many people's lives changed because of Jesus and and have felt and seen that joy that can be found in experiencing the risen Savior. So our invitation today is, is to be a part of it, to be a part of the evidence of the resurrection, to be a, to be a part of it and to know Jesus. And that's pretty exciting. That's a pretty exciting invitation. Today we also have the opportunity to take communion together. And uh, communion, interestingly, is very much tied to the resurrection, even though traditionally we would talk about the death of Jesus. Um, And that's really important to understand as we talk about the death of Jesus, why he died. So why did Jesus die? And Jesus died to pay for, for people's sin. Jesus died to restore back a road to God. He died so that a holy and perfect God could both be just and also merciful and forgiving at the same time. And, uh, and his death was just an incredible act of love. And we remember that in a little ceremony. There's nothing special about the bread or the juice. I mean, just bread and juice. But it, we remember that by taking the bread that represents his body, we dip it into the juice that represents his blood, and we eat that just as to remember Jesus died because he loves us. But today especially, every day, but today especially, we get to remember that that's not the end of the story. He rose from the dead. And his death was an incredible act of love. The resurrection is an incredible act of power and victory over death. It confirms that he is the Son of God. It confirms that he's the Savior of humanity, and he's my Savior. And in his, this infinite love, he extends this power and this victory to us and says, you can have power over sin in your life. I will give you that power. And you can have the victory by living abundantly in grace and love. And ultimately, you can have that power to a resurrection. Resurrection into an eternal life forever. So during this next song, we're going to take communion together. You don't have to. Um, I'm going to ask that you stand when we, when we take communion, just so that people can, can get by you. But if you want to take communion, just grab a piece of bread and dip it into the juice and bring it back. 
to your seat, and we're going to take that together, remembering Jesus' love and then also remembering his power and his resurrection. I love those words. I will not pretend to be sufficient, for I know how badly I need you. I'm running to you. John 4, 1 John 4 says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Let's remember what Jesus has done for us as we take communion together. Let's pray as we close out. Dear God, we just thank you so much for your love. Lord, we thank you so much that you're not dead, that Jesus is alive, and Lord, that he is an active and risen Savior. Lord, we thank you for the mercy and the forgiveness that you extend our way, and Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that teaches us how to love like you, and Lord, that gives us just this joy to be a part of something so amazing and so incredible. And God, I just pray that as we leave here today, Lord, we would experience you this week as a risen Savior in our life. Lord, we invite you to work in our lives. Lord, we invite you to grow our relationship with you so that we could know you in a deeper way. Lord, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.